Today is uh, the, octave of Christ, uh, the octave of Easter, low Sunday, and our third Sunday in a row having a live stream Mass instead of being able to have um, faithful present at the Mass. So we certainly want to keep this intention in our prayers that as soon as possible we can all be back in the church to have our, our normal Sunday Mass. So hopefully this, this period is a time for us to, to really have that intense desire to have that Sunday Mass um, once more. So we, we, we need to pray for that intention every day. So there's a number of announcements in the bulletin. Um, if you uh, come for adoration today, be sure to pick up a copy of, of the bulletin. Tomorrow we have the distance learning drop-off and pick-up. Um, so between 9 and 11 a.m. at the lower and upper schools, you come and drop your materials off at the upper school um, and then go to the lower school in order to do that. And then we'll continue every Monday from there on out um, to have that drop-off and pick-up. There's a list of masses that will be held here uh, during the week in the bulletin. And I sent out a flock note giving a, a link for, for those of you who have not been able to attend Mass in the past month. Um, there's still some slots available. You can sign up um, on signup.com for that um, so you can attend Mass sometime this week. This past week we had the funeral of uh, Mayor Borcherding, a longtime parishioner of the, the parish. So her funeral was on Wednesday. And she's buried in the, in the cemetery. So please uh, pray for the repose of her soul and also for her husband, uh, Mark, and their entire family. For this low Sunday, the epistle is taken from St. John's first epistle. Dearly beloved, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory which overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit which testifies that Christ is the truth. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that give testimony on earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three are one. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God which is greater, because he has testified of his Son. He that believes in the Son of God has the testimony of God in himself. Please stand for the Gospel. The Gospel is taken from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of St. John. At that time, when it was late that same day, the first of the week, and the doors were shut, where the disciples were gathered together for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples, therefore, were glad when they saw the Lord. He said, therefore, to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive you the Holy Ghost. 
whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Jesus comes, the doors being shut, and stands in the midst, and says, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put in thy finger hither, and see my hands, and bring hither thy hand, and put it into my side, and do not be incredulous, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, Because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. Many other signs also did Jesus in the sight of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear faithful, one of the greatest mistakes that we can make in the spiritual life is to expect of God something that God will never give us. And we know how destructive this can be when we're dealing with our friends. If we set expectations of our friends that are unreasonable and which really are never going to be fulfilled. Say you have a friend and you think that your friend has told you that he's going to pay your way through college. This is your impression that your friend is going to pay your way through college and you go to college and then you start going through your education and you incur a debt of $100,000 and then you go to your friend and your friend says to you, no, I, I never said, I, I, I never ever remember telling you that, that I was going to pay your way through college. And when this happens, um, the, your, your friendship with, with this person is, is very much shaken and it's all based on your false expectation. The, the false expectation that was there from the beginning set up a situation that was really a disaster waiting to happen. Whenever we're in that situation where we're expecting things of another that are not reasonable or that really are never going to be fulfilled, um, there's definitely going to be a certain tension that will be caused. Um, for one thing, we are, are not going to anticipate properly what our friends, how our friends is going to behave. So our friends going to take us off guard in their behavior. And then our friend is definitely going to fail to live up to our expectations. When our expectations are false, uh, our friend's going to behave in a certain way and they're definitely not going to live up to our expectations. And we will start to feel betrayed by that friend uh, when, when they do not, um, from, from our perspective, fulfill their part of the burden of friendship. And in the end, of course, the very friendship itself is going to be threatened. Sooner or later, it's going to reach a breaking point, a time of crisis, and that depends on how false the false expectations are. To the degree that the expectations are false, 
um, the more tension there's going to be in the friendship. And in the end, if the expectations are way off base, um, then the friendship itself may well be lost in the end. And the thing is that, that people out in the world, and even, even Catholics, can have a tendency to do this with God. They set false expectations for God, and then they're disappointed when he does not act in the way that they want it. And this is especially true today when people are expecting God to relieve suffering in the world or make this life easier than it actually is. They want God, or they think that God has a duty to limit suffering and to make life easy. And then they say to themselves, well, I mean, if you have the power to relieve physical suffering, then you should do it. God has all power, so he has the power to relieve physical suffering. And then he doesn't step in, in this case or that case, he allowed my loved one to die, or he allowed me to suffer this injury, or me to contract this disease, or whatever it is, and he did not step in. Therefore, God is unjust, or God has betrayed the human race, or, or whatever. And there's this massive crisis in a person's faith, in their relationship with God, and it's all based on their false perception of God. All along, they were thinking of God as someone whom God is not, and they were thinking of God as promising or needing to do something that he hasn't promised and which he has no duty to accomplish. And so when their God does not fulfill their expectations, they abandon that God. Does this sound familiar? Does this pattern remind us of something? Well, yes, it does. It very much reminds us of the behavior of the apostles in their perceptions of our Lord. Like many of the Jews, so many of the Jews, um, they thought that our Lord was, was the Messiah, and they had a totally wrong view of who the Messiah was meant to be, um, of who God promised that the Messiah would become when he arrived. They had very precise expectations about the Messiah, and we can sum up those expectations in three points. First of all, the Messiah had to be very powerful. Secondly, he had to use his power to make himself a king. And then, once he became a king, he then was obliged, in their mind, to overthrow the Romans and set up Israel once more as a political state and give Israel a certain uh, political hegemony in amongst the world powers. And there's no, there's no problem with this first expectation of, of our Lord as being Messiah. Certainly our Lord had great power. No problem there. He was very powerful. He was all-powerful. But the second and the third points were very problematic. Our Lord had no intention whatsoever to make himself a king. He was constantly avoiding any attempts to make him king, and he was also not going to start a war against the Romans. So there was no way that he was going to fulfill these expectations of the Messiah, at least not in the way that they anticipated. He was a very different person from the persons the apostles anticipated, 
And he had very different plans from the plans that the apostles had for our Lord. And because the apostles got our Lord so wrong, they were setting themselves up for very, very serious disappointments. And what is ironic about this situation is that our Lord told them continually what his real plan was. He did not hide from them the fact that he was going to be mocked, he was going to be spit upon, he was going to be delivered from his enemies, he was going to be crucified, and that on the third day he was going to rise from the dead. That was his plan. It was not for him to conquer, it was for him to be conquered. It was not for him to defeat his enemies. His plan was to be defeated by his enemies. And then, after he was defeated by them, he would defeat them. He would rise from the dead after his defeat. Then he would conquer the scribes and the Pharisees. He would conquer the evil religious leaders in Israel. And then later on, he would defeat, in fact, the Roman Empire and put the Catholic Church in its place, such that the Catholic Church would have the ultimate power over that civilization that once was. That was the real plan of God, the real plan of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was so far superior to the plan of the apostles, so much better than the plan of being a worldly messiah, the, the messiah that had been anticipated by the Jews. I think it's important for us to, to reflect carefully on this plan. We know that this was, this was the plan of our Lord. And, and think about how incredible this plan is that our Lord had formulated or God had formulated from all eternity and which was executed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider a general speaking to his army and he tells them, okay men, here is the plan. We're going to go out, we're going to do battle with the enemy, and we're going to be defeated. We're going to allow the enemy to defeat us, and then afterwards, we're going to defeat them. And one of the soldiers is there, and he says, but, but sir, I mean, when you say that we're going to defeat, be defeated, do you mean that we're going to die? He says, well, yes, yes. We're going to go out there, and we're going to get killed. And he says, but, but, but sir, I mean, how are we going to turn around and defeat them after we've been killed? How are we going to act against them when we're dead? And he says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to rise up from the dead. That's how we're going to do it. This plan would be utterly inconceivable. It is not a plan that anybody would think about for the simple reason that no one can do it. We all know that nobody can do that, and anyone proposing such a plan would be considered crazy. But that was the plan that our Lord had in mind. Really, it was the only plan that, that well, not, it, it, it was a plan that was gauged to show that he was a Messiah who was God. If he had a plan of a political, worldly messiah, then there would be absolutely no manifestation that our Lord was God if he was like a Jewish Julius Caesar or something like that. 
That was the plan that our Lord had in mind, one that required supernatural power. It was the plan that he proposed to the apostles. It was the plan that he executed. He allowed his enemies to kill him. They thought that they had defeated him. He rose from the dead, then he defeated them. And we all know that when you're fighting an enemy, the very best outcome you can hope for is that you put your enemy to death. You kill your enemy. And then you know that your enemy cannot possibly do you any harm from that point forward. He has no more resources. He can do nothing. He's just buried and you know, um, completely immobile in the cemetery. But what if you had an enemy who you defeated, you killed on the battlefield, and then a few days later you're back out on the battlefield and he's there again? What kind of terror would this strike in your heart? What would be your impression in facing this enemy? Your impression would certainly be that you cannot possibly win. If you kill your enemy and he keeps coming back, then there's no way that you can defeat your enemy. You're facing an enemy who cannot be killed. Meanwhile, if you are killed, there's nothing further that you can do because you do not have that power to raise yourself up from the dead. Now, the apostles were not thinking about this plan. We can excuse them for not thinking about the plan, but what we can't excuse them for is not thinking about it after they have been told the plan by our Lord four or five times. But can we excuse ourselves if we're not thinking about that plan? Because, in fact, that plan has not changed, and it will never change. That is the plan that God has laid out, and God is not going to change the plan. There is no other plan, and we're either going to accept that plan or we're going to reject that plan, one or the other. If we accept the plan, we are enter into life, and into glory, as our Lord did. If we reject it, we will lose our souls, we will die, and we will not participate in the triumph of our Lord over death and over his enemies. Now, St. Thomas the Apostle in today's Gospel, he gives us a prime example of what happens when we make false demands of our Lord. When we set these false expectations and we have this friendship with our Lord, and the false expectations later seriously jeopardize our faith in our friendship with our Lord. St. Thomas was, was dreaming of spending the rest of his life with our Lord. He enjoyed so much the company of our Lord. He was so enraptured by the person of our Lord. And he was thinking about his whole life being spent next to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, very suddenly, in a matter of 24 hours, our Lord is dead and buried in the tomb. And St. Thomas feels very much let down by our Lord, as if our Lord did not follow through with what he was supposed to do. He did not fulfill for Thomas what St. Thomas's expectations were. And we can, we can imagine that, that St. Thomas was so hurt <clears throat> by this fact that our Lord allowed himself 
to be killed by his enemies, that he was really considering another career path. And the reason for this is the fact that we do not find St. Thomas with the apostles on Easter Sunday. And we ask ourselves, where was he? He wasn't there. He was probably considering another career path. The apostles were probably saying, hey, Thomas, we're going we're to be there, um, you know, we, we, uh, celebrating the Passover, the, the, the Sabbath. Um, join us. And he's like, no, guys, look, I'm done. I'm finished. Um, he's dead. What, what more do you want? There, there is no future here. I'm just going to move on. I've got other plans. And the extraordinary thing is this, this, this sort of melancholy and, and um, moping that, that St. Thomas does is, is so stubborn and extends even beyond um, all reasonableness because of the fact that the apostles go to Thomas after they witness the resurrection of our Lord, or the, the, the risen Lord, and they say to him, we've seen the Lord. We've touched the Lord. And obviously they're not going to be tricking him on this. They're not going to say, oh, you know, it's just joking about that. I mean, it's just, we were just making that up. Um, they would never do that. Um, St. Thomas is clearly on the verge of losing the faith when he won't even believe the apostles. And he sets these outrageous demands on our Lord. Unless I see him, unless I touch him, unless I actually touch his wounds, I will not believe. He sets demands of God himself. It's very extraordinary that our Lord grants these demands. How humble is the Sacred Heart to go to this prideful, stubborn, melancholy, moping apostle and grant the demands that he made when, when it was his fault that he did not believe. After our Lord grants us, our Lord does wait eight days before he goes to, to Thomas. He, he allows him to stew in his melancholy for eight days before going to him. But after that, St. Thomas is willing to follow our Lord's plans and demanding that his plans be followed. Our Lord grants St. Thomas's wish to that, that St. Thomas's plans be followed. He, our Lord is willing to do that on that one occasion. And from that point, St. Thomas then follows our Lord's plans for the rest of his life. So it's very important for us to ask ourselves to what degree we are setting false expectations of God in our lives and to what degree we are conforming ourselves to his plan. Whose will is our life about? Is it about our will and God helping us accomplish our will? Or is it about us doing God's will and fulfilling his plan? And we have to be very, very clear about this. The plan is always the same. The plan has not changed and will not change. It's like this. In this life, we suffer at the hands of God's enemies. We do not conquer them in this life. Evil is meant to have an apparent triumph in this life, as it did in our Lord's death. We follow our Lord on the road to Calvary. We refuse to cooperate in the evil of the world. We do not conform ourselves to the spirit of this world. And as a result, we are persecuted. We do not run from this persecution. 
We do not oppose this persecution with a worldly spirit, looking upon merely human resources and physical violence in order to, to, uh, in order to overcome this persecution. We on the, uh, rather persevere in this life, being faithful to our Lord and unfaithful to this world. We do not receive fame and glory for this, and then one day we die. The enemies of our Lord laugh us to scorn. They consider that all of our efforts are wasted, that we were losers in this life. And then one day, we come back from the dead. And when we come back, we, we don't come back as our former selves. We come back possessing that glorious life that our Lord had after his resurrection. Uh, we possess a life that never ends. We possess a life where our soul is glorified by the beatific vision. Our body is glorified, reflecting the great glory of the soul. And the worldlings are going to look at us and be in a state of utter shock. They never expected such an outcome. They thought that they had won when, in fact, they had lost and had lost forever. And that's the plan. That's the plan for all of us. It's a revealed truth. It's exemplified in the life of our Lord. It's modeled by our Lord. We are meant to tread that exact same path. And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to embrace this plan? Am I willing for this to be the plan for my life? Are you willing for the sorrowful mysteries to precede the glorious mysteries? Or do you somehow want to change things around? Do you think that God's job is to make sure that you do not have sufferings in this life? Or do you think that it's God's job to give you strength in the midst of your sufferings so that you can persevere to the end of your life being faithful to Him? We might as well embrace God's plans now because they're not going to change. We must not expect anything else of God. We must not have those false expectations as if we can have him do something different from this plan. Our final victory has to wait until after death. Our victory will be in coming back from the dead, not in putting our enemies to death. This week we have two feasts of holy martyrs, um, the feast of Saints Soder and Caius, on Tuesday, and then the Feast of St. Fidelis on Thursday. And the martyrs especially represent those who adopted the plan of our Lord and followed him most closely in executing that plan. And the church has a very special mass for the martyrs during the Paschal season. It's not like the comment of the martyrs during the rest of the year. So there's a comment of the martyrs for the Paschal season and the epistle for that Mass is taken from the Book of Wisdom, and it describes the reaction that the ungodly will have at the Last Judgment when they see the victory of the just, that totally unexpected victory that is accomplished after death. Here is how the Book of Wisdom describes that scene. The just one with great assurance will stand before his oppressors who set his labors to naught. Seeing this, the oppressor shall be shaken with dreadful fear, 
being amazed at the just man's unlooked-for salvation. They shall say among themselves, rueful and groaning through anguish of spirit, This is he whom we once held as a laughingstock and as a type for mockery, fools that we were. We deemed his life madness and his death dishonorable. See how he is now accounted among the sons of God, how his lot is with the saints. And this, my dear faithful, is what is in store for you if you execute the plan that God has for you in this life. This is the way to victory, the path that we must tread in order to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us especially ask Our Lady on this low Sunday to embrace that plan fully right now, to embrace, to accept that plan, to embrace it as far as we are able. Our Lady never had false expectations of her son or of her own life. She was never asking her son not to be crucified or for herself to be delivered from her seven sorrows. Or to be saying, no, this is not how it should go down. This is not the right plan. This is not the way things should be arranged for a mother of the Messiah, for a mother of God. Rather, she embraced the plan of God completely when she said, be it done unto me according to thy word. So we have to ask her on this day to help us to set aside whatever false ideas we may have about how God should arrange our lives and that she help us to embrace completely God's true plan, which is for us to gain our great victory, not during this life, but rather after we are dead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.